Kairos. How's everybody today? Woo! This side is really excited about the Word of God. Um, Y'all, thank Justin for helping me up so I wouldn't take a dive. Yes. <laughs> Claps to Justin. Uh, my name is Shana. And we are so glad to have you guys today in service and worship. We are continuing our series on love and lies. And I think today is going to be a really good one. Um, we're going to pick up the scripture tonight in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12 through 7, verse 1. So 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 7, verse 1. But before we read, will you pray with me? Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Jesus, would you go before us and make a way? And together we say, speak, Lord, your servant will hear. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. You say, I am allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And even though I am allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. You say food was made for the stomach and the stomach for food. This is true, though someday God would do away with both of them. But you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord, and the Lord cares about our bodies. And God will raise us from the dead by his power, just as he raised our Lord from the dead. Don't you realize that your bodies are actually part of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her? For the scripture says, the two are united into one. But the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against one's own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself. For God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. Now, regarding the question you asked in your letter, yes, it is good to abstain from sexual relations. I'll say, bless the Lord. If you'll say, oh, my soul, bless the Lord. Bless his holy name. Hi, Kairos. Just a reminder, I'm Chris. I'm your pastor. Um, I absolutely love this congregation. I love some of the full-time ministers I get to serve alongside of, Boggs, Purdom, Steph. We get really, really excited about creating a community of disciple makers, making pockets for wolf packs of men and women who are determined to learn, love, and live the words of Jesus out that they find every day in their Bibles. And nothing could make me more excited than doing that. But as we get together, and especially around this topic, we've begun to pray, talk with you guys, and listen and hear your stories. Nothing breaks our heart more when we see the tsunami of physical, spiritual, and emotional pain 
that many of you are going through simply because you're involved in sinful relationships. That's tough as a pastor. Now, hear my heart. We're not afraid of sin. We're not afraid of sinners. I've given my life to allow the broken to become brave again through the glory and goodness of Jesus Christ. It's happened for me. It can happen for you. This is not a talk of guilt, a condemnation, or shame. It is one about freedom and flourishing in the name of Jesus. But I do need to say this. The sad truth is many of us in this room tonight, the relational pain you are experiencing was totally avoidable. Not all of it. Not all of it. Believe me, I've heard your stories. I know my own. Some of it chose you. Some of you had your power violated. Some of you have messed up family of origins. I get it. You bring all that emotional toxicity and baggage and you're working through it. And some of that stuff chose you. You didn't chose it. But there is a vast majority of us in this room who we are experiencing relational damage and dysfunction simply because of this. You chose not to choose the way of Jesus. G.K. Chesterton puts it this way. He said that the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and untried. That's not going to be us. We're going to dive straight into God's word. We're going to listen to every single syllable. And we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to empower and animate us to live the life God has intended for us to live. So, we're on myth number four. Singleness wastes your sexuality. Are we all uncomfortable? Because it's really quiet in here. I can't wait for the next cell phone to drop because it's really going to be loud. <laughs> There's a corresponding myth in every marriage, right? Okay, marriage folks, by the way, you're not off the hook. Don't forget, chances are there will probably be another season in your life where you are single. And this applies to you when you get there, okay? The corresponding myth, though, of singleness wastes your sexuality. Marriage has a myth that marriage will satisfy all of your sexual desires. You ready for a three-second sermon? Not true. Next point. <laughs> I also need to acknowledge... The irony and perhaps even what you might consider the hypocrisy that a married man is about to preach from a text that a single person wrote about celibacy. Here's what I want to ask you. I want to caution you to consider the pride in your heart sometimes around the pain that you've experienced or are currently experiencing. What do I mean by that? Anytime someone wants to speak directly the word of God into our lives, immediately the pain that we carry and the circumstances that we carry raises up a wall of pride and says, yeah, but, yeah, but, you don't know this about me. Yeah, but, yeah, but. I'm asking you to lower that down and allow the word of God to speak directly to you. And it's a big deal, especially when it comes to those of us who are in a season of singleness. Um, Marshall Siegel is a guy I've been reading. He wrote a book called Not Yet Married. Those are, I think, all on the Instagram. I'm trying to make sure I cite all my sources as diligently as possible. He was in his late 20s, single and miserable. He just confessed, hey, I I'm a Christian. I'm trying my best to follow Jesus. But he had made romantic love and marriage an idol in his heart and believed that he would not be satisfied or fulfilled until that happened. That led to some poor decisions. And some relationships he regrets. And as he began to reorient his life around the words of Jesus and living in a season of singleness and celibacy for the glory of God, he began to write honestly 
authentically and compellingly about it. Was publishing some articles on a website, and he was getting a lot of good response, especially from singles. Um, and then, uh, lo and behold, got married. Um, and after he got back from his honeymoon, he published an article called Hope for the Unhappy Single. And he got ripped apart online. Here are some of the angry tweets for he got for his article. This is not meant to be disrespectful, but it's really hard to take seriously an article on singleness from someone who's married. This is just offensive. Only married people write stuff like this. Or it's always the married people that give you the advice about being satisfied with Jesus. That's real easy for them to say. You know what the irony was about that? He wrote that article while he was still single. He just published it after he was married. Same author, same truths, same Bible, now summarily rejected because of his relationship status. I would ask for similar compassion from you. Just because of my relationship status, do not reject the word of God that's being preached tonight. In your pride, do not plug your ears and go, no, 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 you don't understand. God has ordained a season of singleness for us all. And he's instructed us on how we're supposed to live. Here's the good news. Uh, I don't know wh what your family looks like, your lack of family, or your church upbringing looks like when it comes to sexuality. But the Bible talks about it, and we're going to talk about it. Good news. God created you to be known, loved, and valued. Good news. God created sex. It's his fault, okay? <laughs> he designed us. We are made in his image. He has given you a sex drive to drive you into his arms for love, satisfaction, and fulfillment. Now watch this one. He wants all of your passions, desires, and longings, comma, unfulfilled and fulfilled, comma, to raise your awareness of your need for him. I'm going to say that again. He wants all of your longings, your desires, your passions, comma, fulfilled and also unfulfilled desires, passions, and longings to raise your awareness of your need for him. God designed human sexuality and designed it with specific guidelines for your freedom and your flourishing. Jesus, who was single and celibate, was not shy about talking about sexuality. Jesus, who was single and celibate, I don't know why I just like saying it in that pentameter. It just gets fun every time I say it. Was a single man who experienced deep intimacy, powerful passion, and intense purpose without ever having experienced a sexual relationship. Paul, who is a single man who wrote our text that Shana just read, and a missionary, is talking about sexuality to all of his churches, the Romans, the Corinthians, the Galatians, the Ephesians, the Colossians, and the Thessalonians. And tonight, to the Kairosians, okay? <laughs> Megan Lyons, she's a single female in her 30s who wrote a book I'm also reading through called Wrestling with Singleness. She, she confesses this. Hey, when I first started reading the Bible, it amazed me that the Bible even talked about sexual sin. I had always assumed that the church made up the don't have sex before you get married rule much later. I could not imagine that the Holy Bible would actually refer to to sex. It does. It's in the first chapter. And it is a good thing. And it is a gift that God has given us. 
But when you take a good thing and make it a God thing, that's a bad thing, and that's called idolatry. So let's be careful. What happens is you and I, when we raise our desires, our passions, and our longings, and our appetites, and we put them above God, we will worship with unrestrained desires and sin. Or as Romans 1.22 puts it this way, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God. Therefore, God gave them over to sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. What is sexual sin? What is shameful lust? Let's just let Jesus speak for himself here. We, we did this when we first started out this series. But there's, uh, I think there's some of us who have never actually opened up our Bibles. Some of you are blissfully ignorant and going, well, I, if I don't see it, I don't know about it, then I'm not accountable to it. Uh, <laughs> you're not five. That doesn't work, okay? <laughs> and I tried it. Well, into my 20s, it still doesn't work, okay? Here's what Jesus says about our sexuality. Um, when defining uh, appropriate outlets for sexuality, he says marriage is between a man and a woman for life. The only godly alternative between marriage between a man and a woman for life is celibacy. Sex outside of marriage is sinful. That's Jesus. Sexual sin includes not just the act, but our thoughts and attitudes about it as well. Are you all clear on what the Bible says? Singleness and celibacy does not waste your sexuality. It safeguards it. To function and flourish in the way that God intended it to. Now, I know for a lot of us, that sounds outdated on our ears, doesn't it? Sounds a little bit repressive, prudish. Like, come on, Jesus, seriously? Have you ever wondered, could Jesus have imagined the culture we would be living in? The sexually saturated, digitally available culture that we have where we're so enlightened, right? Did he have any idea how hard and difficult this command would be to obey in this day and age? If you ask yourself that question, you also have to ask yourself this question. I wonder if Jesus knew exactly what would happen when we neglect, ignore, and rebel by rewriting the biblical sexual ethic. Philip Yancey says it this way, I know of no greater failure among Christians than presenting a persuasive approach to sexuality. People outside of the church often see God as the great spoil sport of human sexuality, not its inventor. Here's where we as the church, of which I am a part of and I bear responsibility, we have failed in presenting a persuasive biblical sexual ethic. And this is what we decided to do instead. We decided either to be silent or to shame you to death or just to shrug our shoulders and go, eh, not really sure I'm going to say anything about that anymore. No one's really listening. Silence, why? Because it's a taboo subject. Our parents didn't talk about that. They slept in separate beds. It's just weird. Stop it. Shh. 
We don't talk about that, Daddy. Okay. Ew, yuck. Got it. Thanks, Max. Or perhaps one of the reasons that we're silent about it today is the most ignorant, intolerant, and insensitive thing you can say to a single or married person today is flee sexual immorality. Run away from it. Literal Greek rendering of that word there, thank you, Dr. Purdom, is run to safety because you're in danger of destroying you, your soul, and the people you're coming in contact with. And then we start talking about it dripping with shame. Maybe that was an overcorrection for being silent about it for too long. And then all of a sudden you have these condemning and condescending religious voices booming from bullhorns and billboards down on those who are sexually broken and bruised and battered and basically just giving them a lifetime sentence of resentment and rejection. That's not working, is it? And it doesn't at all sound like Jesus. And then maybe, just maybe, some of you, some of us, we've decided, let's just shrug it off. Ugh. What are we really going to do in the wake of all of this sexuality? No one's really listening. Everyone's sleeping together, moving in together. No one's really keeping it between a man and a woman in marriage. Let's just, under the brittle, burning banner of acceptance, because we don't want to be branded intolerant, Let's not speak the words of Jesus anymore. Now, don't forget, Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. But do we believe anymore it's possible to hear the word of a God and obey it? Or we have we abandoned all power and authority as sons of God and daughters of God? Jesus did none of these. He was not silent. He did not use shame. And he certainly did not shrug it off. He did the work and the will of the Father who sent him. I think the best example of this is if you look in John chapter 8, there's a woman who's caught in adultery. She gets drugged before a bunch of arrogant, hypocritical, I'm filling in those gaps. The text doesn't say all that stuff. There's a bunch of religious leaders. And they're ready to stone her to death. And Jesus starts drawing in the sand, possibly, and then says, hey, those of you without sin, cast the first stone. One by one, they start dropping them, and the oldest first to the youngest. And then he looks her in the eyes. He says, where are your accusers? Does no one condemn you? She says, no one Neither do I condemn you. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit gives life and has set us free from the law of sin and death. That's not the way we should think. You know what Jesus said with fiery compassion his grace and his truth personified both in this statement, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. That's also grace and truth. A different way of living is possible. You're not valued by your sexuality and what you can offer others. You are intrinsically valued simply because you are a child 
of God. Go and sin no more. Hey, men and women, if no one's ever locked eyes with you, just hear me say this. Neither do I condemn you. The truckloads of brokenness, guilt, sin, and shame, especially around your sexuality and your plans for tonight afterwards, neither do I condemn you. But hear this as well. Go and sin no more. You did not receive a spirit that made you slaves again to live in fear. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoptions, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. And those of us who are children of God are also heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ Jesus. Let's start living like it. Let's start partnering with the power of the resurrected Jesus by the spirit of Jesus to live life a different way. You do not have to be trapped in the cycle of sin, guilt, and shame. You saw your parents hand down to you. And while you're living right now, you can live a different way. I think the best way to close is simply with the word of God. I'm going to reread our text that Shana read for us in a different translation, just so it catches your ears differently. Just because something is technically legal doesn't mean it's spiritually appropriate. If I wanna, went around doing whatever I thought I could get by with, I would be a slave to my whims. You know the old saying, first you eat to live and then you live to eat. Well, hang on, I'm losing something. Well, it may be true that the body's only a temporary thing, but that's no excuse for stuffing your body with food or indulging it with sex. Since the master, that's Jesus, honors you with a body, honor him with your body. God honored the master's body by raising it from the grave. He'll treat yours with the same resurrection power. Until that time, remember your bodies were created with the same dignity as the master's body. You wouldn't take the master's body off to a whorehouse, would you, or onto that website? I should hope not. There's more to sex than just skin on skin. Sex is as much a spiritual mystery as a physical fact. As it is written in scripture, the two become one. Since we want to become spiritually one with the master, we must not pursue the kind of sex that avoids commitment and intimacy, leaving us more lonely than ever. The kind of sex that can never become one. This is a sense in which sexual sins are different from others. In sexual sin, we violate the sacredness of our own bodies. These bodies that were made for God-given and God-modeled love for becoming one with one another. Or didn't you realize that your body is a sacred place, the place of the Holy Spirit? Don't you see that you can't live however you please, squandering what God paid such a high price for? But my body's my own, I can do whatever I want with it. Don't you see that you can't live however you please, squandering what God paid such a high price for? The physical part of you is not some piece of property belonging to the spiritual part of you. God owns the whole works. So let people see God in and through your body.
I'll say the word of the Lord if you'll say thanks be to God. The word of the Lord. Let's take 120 seconds and ask Jesus what had your name on it. That's as simple and straightforward as I can make it. Now I'd ask the Holy Spirit to either bring you comfort or conviction in this moment. If you need help processing, listening to the voice of God, we just like to make space after we preach the Bible clearly for us to respond. What did I hear that I need to obey? What was revealed and how do I need to respond to it? As a child of God, to increase my level of intimacy and power with the Holy Spirit. So if you're off to the races, go for it. If you need some prompts, I I would ask you this. Is there any sin that you came in here that's condemning you? That you're living underneath guilt and shame for? That the Holy Spirit has raised your awareness on? in a posture of repentance. Kneel before the feet of Jesus. Look full into his wonderful face. And allow him to whisper to you, neither do I condemn you. Full and final forgiveness was purchased for you on the cross. You just have to access it. let him whisper to you, oh child, go and sin no more. What sin in your life do you want to say no more to? Not who I am.